We are in Psalm 65 again. We had the privilege of looking at this last time. I told you then we weren't going to finish then. And hopefully, uh, God willing, we'd have the opportunity to finish this time. And so we will begin. Let me read for us Psalm 65. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion. And to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness. O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. Verse 6, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their ways, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. Verse 9, you visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have pre prepared it. Your water, you water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and they sing together for joy. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for all that you've done. The psalmist David here, he just is overwhelmed with praise. And Father, I pray for a heart like that. A heart that is just overwhelmed with all that you've done and a heart of praise. I pray, Father, that you would help us to see that praise awaits you. Praise is owed to you. Praise is due to you for what you have done, for what you have given us, especially in Christ. Pray, Father, that you would be praised among your people. You would get the praise that is due to your name among your people this morning. We ask these things, Father, through the name of Jesus, by the Spirit, would these be brought about. Amen. So two weeks ago, uh, we had the opportunity to, to look at this psalm together. And, and let me give you a way of summary some summarizing points of last time uh, as we looked at it. So we looked at the main point, the opening verse gives it away, and that is praise awaits God, especially among the people of God. God is due, he's owed praise. That is, the psalmist declares that God is due, like something that needs to be paid, praise. He's, pray, he's owed praise by everyone, but he certainly owed praise by the people of God. And we looked at verses six through eight there, so we skipped down. We did verse one, 
Then we skip down to verses 6 through 8. And we look and we saw that God had God should be praised because he is the creator. He has established all things. He's established even the mountains. And the people of God recognize this. This is the difference between the people of God and those who are not the people of God. The people of God recognize that God is the creator. This is not so for those who are not the people of God. And as such, God's people should praise him, praise him as creator. And so God's people recognize the works of God in our daily lives. We also recognized in verses 19 through 13 that we should praise God not just as the creator, but he's the one who provides. We should recognize that God is regularly providing for us. We should give full credit to God, full credit for the regular rains that are needed, full credit for regular needed bank deposits. We recognize that all provision comes from the hand of God. And finally, we said that this type of recognition of God's creative work, God's work of provision, it will likely not be seen by the rest of the world. We shouldn't be shocked when the rest of the world is not praising God for these things. But it is right. It is fitting for the people of God to give credit to God as creator and provider. So now we're circling back this week to verses 2 through 5. And here we will see that the desire of God's people to give him praise as a creator, to give him praise as a provider, is rooted in God's work in personal redemption and in God's work in adoption. So I was thinking about this as I was going through it, and I was thinking if I'm sitting there, perhaps a question that I would have would be something like this. Okay, great. But how does this apply to my life? Or another way to put it, well, I don't have a problem hearing about these things. I can't tell you I disagree with them. I just don't really see, quite honestly, how this is going to be helpful to me. I think it's a fair question. That's one of the first things we want to find out on anything is how is this helpful to me? Um, my brief response would be to try and see that the Psalms are actually what we would call perspectival. That is, they're not telling us necessarily exactly what we should do, is they're trying to help us to gain the right perspective. Further, I think having the right perspective is much more important than any of us ever want to admit that it is. We often have much less control over our circumstances than any of us think we do. We live, we like to live as if we have control over our circumstances, but the truth is, most of the time we don't. Moreover, it's usually our perspective that we do have a little bit of control over. And it's also our perspective that drives how we respond to what? Circumstances, how we treat others and how we live in harmony with God. In particular, our perspective likely determines whether we will offer praise to God or not. So all that said, I'm hoping we will gain together perspective. So as we begin to look at verses 2 through 5, I want you to see that verses 2 through 5 follow what might be called a chiastic structure. You're just welcome news to you to, 
to get to talk about chiastic structures uh, together this morning. That's what you're open for. Um, so I, the word chiasm, it comes from the Greek letter chi, and the Greek letter chi looks like an X. So why do they call a chiastic structure something with that looks like letter X? Well, if you actually think about the letter X, the letter X is a mirrored image of two lines, right? They do like that. One line is a mirror image of the other. Well, if you look at a chiastic structure, it is, it is all about mirrored images. So you see one area mirrored in another and another area mirrored in another, etc. And so that's what you've seen. I put this in your handout where you can see that verses two and five, I've labeled them A1 and A2. They're a mirror of each other. They're the outside verses. And then you can see uh, that verses three in the second half of verse four, they're a mirrored image. Label those B1 and B2 of each other. And finally, the first part of verse four makes up the innermost part of this, and it is unmirrored. There is no mirror structure to it. And we'll see how that ties into this. This is actually not unusual at all, especially in Hebrew. They do this a lot. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. So this, this is not uh, surprising to find something like this. I think this is how to understand verses two through five. So um, let's start with the outside. So we're going to actually start with the red, verses two, and then verse five, and then we'll work our way back in. So what do we see? Well, first, the people of God can praise God because we have privileged access. Oh, you who hear prayer to you shall all flesh come. Verse two says that God deserves to be praised because he is the one who hears prayers. John Calvin writing some 500 years ago, made a very helpful statement about this. He says that the language is not simply praising God for hearing prayer. No, 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 no. He says that's not how the language works here, and he's right. Instead, the psalmist David, directed by the Spirit, he praises God for being one who can hear prayer. In other words, it's his title. He is the one who hears prayers. And notice he ends the verse with the phrase, to you, the one who hears prayers, shall all flesh come. It's not a claim that all humans are praying to the God of the Bible. Instead, it is a claim that God is unique because he is the one who has the unshared ability to hear prayer. Brothers and sisters, God deserves to be praised because he and he alone can hear prayer. Yes, lots of people around the world pray to idols, animals, ancestors, weird spirits, but only God, our God, can hear prayer. We have reason to praise God because he's granted us access to talk to him. It's actually a really wild, well, fantastic. It's a wild idea. So these days you can wait hours to get in touch with a real person to help you. I should get an amen on that. I've seen this change a lot even in my short time in business. Back in the day, you would call someone and they did the craziest thing. They answered the phone. 
I don't even consider calling someone anymore in business. I, I always shoot an email first and we schedule a time, right? The funny thing is we now all have phones that are on our persons everywhere we go, but we have less access to each other than when we did when the phones were connected to a wall. When I call customer service, <clears throat> I need counseling just for saying that. I always feel like I am playing the lottery, like almost certain you will not get anyone to answer. And if they answer, they will almost certainly not be helpful. But you try anyway. Now, consider this. This is the truth. We. Who do not have access to even talk to a customer service agent. We can march straight in to the office of the ruler of the planet. Just think about that. There's no queue. There's no receptionist. There's no waiting room. There's no access code. We just did it a few moments ago. Our pastor walked us together right into the office of the ruler of the planet. Not only can we get a hold of him, but he speaks our language. And you know what? There's nothing he can't do. God has never told someone on the line, I'm sorry, I just don't have the clearance for that. I'm going to have to get a manager. God has never praised God. He has never transferred a call. He doesn't even have a transfer button. You can walk in. You can't walk in to the manager of any store you go to. Try it. You can't get to the mayor of the city today. Try it. You can't get near the governor. I promise you, you won't get near the president. You can walk in right now and talk to the ruler of the planet. And he owns everything. That's what he's talking about. God is given us should be praised because he has given us this. And while he's able to answer all flesh, he has not granted access to all flesh. Make sure I'm clear about that. The Bible is clear. Access to God is special. It is privileged. Ephesians 3.12 says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence. Here's the privilege part through our faith in him. The psalmist makes a similar point in verse five, and I want you to see this. He explains that our access did not come cheap or easy. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness. That's how it happened, by awesome deeds. I love Calvin on this point. He says, it is no common or ordinary manner that God has preserved his church, but with terrible majesty. We can think here of the drama and the works of God to rescue his people from Egypt. God did terrible and amazing things to bring the Israelites to himself. But of course, we can think of much more terrible and much more amazing things that have done 
God has done when we consider the cross of Calvary. That's what bought us access. It was equally terrible as it was amazing that the sinless, perfect Son of God was tortured on a cross. It was equally terrible and amazing that the holy God of heaven had the sins of all of his sheep placed upon him. And it was equally terrible and amazing that the sustainer of life sustained death. This access, this privileged position isn't a right you get by birth. Is an access granted by the amazing and terrible works of righteousness. That's what verse 5 is after. Hence, the psalmist describes God as the God of salvation in verse 5. That's why there's a mirror there. Verse 2, wow, I have access. Verse 5, yeah, but it didn't come cheap. So in verse 2 and 5, we can see that we can praise God for access. And in second, we consider this second section, section B. And I want you to see that we can praise God, not just for privileged access, but for privileged satisfaction. Praise God for satisfaction. Satisfaction for who, Tim? Satisfaction for God or satisfaction for us? Yes. Verse three says that when iniquities prevail against me, God atones for our transgressions. Now, this is a very uniquely Christian idea that iniquities can actually prevail against us. Other religions have a place for sin. Don't get me wrong. But for every other religion, sin is a manageable problem. Christianity understands that our sin can and will will prevail against us. It will overcome us, ruin us if God doesn't intervene. We don't bring any solution to our problem in Christianity. God brings about a solution to our problem. Hence, we are told that sins will prevail against us. God atones for our transgression. There are two key parts here. Both are incredibly important. First, our sins must be atoned for. They cannot be simply forgotten or ignored. This is actually the religion of most people in America who call themselves Christians. They honestly believe that the sins can just be ignored or forgotten. Ask them, do you think your sins are forgiven? Almost every one of them, they're not even going to pick up. It's going to come right back. Yes. Next question. It's it's really helpful. Ask it that way. How? I promise you, 90% of people have not thought of that question. It's the difference between real faith and made-up Christianity. How? How are your sins forgiven? Are they forgiven because they're just forgotten? That's what most people think. God's a really, really nice guy. He'll just forget about it. It's not Christian. The answer in Christianity is all in the how, and it's all in Jesus. God doesn't just act like they never happened until he first owns them. 
See, he owns them deeply on the cross, and then he acts like they never happened. And that leads to the second key point. God himself atones for our sins. We don't atone for our sins. We can't. The language here is intentional. You, God, atone for our transgressions. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Now, keep in mind, this is the greatest part about reading Psalms. These are written how long before Jesus? A thousand years. So don't tell me that the idea of how our sins are going to be taken care of shows up when Jesus shows up. These were written a thousand years before Jesus. It's already waiting for him. So the whole process is actually a process of satisfying God with us. This is hard for our world to imagine. That without amazing and terrible works of God, God is not satisfied with us. But the biblical perspective conveys the idea that unless God works in strong ways on our behalf, unless something wild happens, God cannot be satisfied with us. God is satisfied with us only after his son Jesus bore our sin on the cross. God does the work of satisfying God on our behalf. We say that again. You can think about that one this afternoon. God does the work of satisfying who? God on our behalf. Friend, let me ask you. One of the most, no, the most important question you can ever get. Have you considered the problem of your sin? Have you come to a place where you recognize the reality? Your sin will overcome you. It will ruin you. The Bible says that's true for me. And it says it's true for you. And it simultaneously teaches that God has miraculously provided salvation by his work of atonement. By turning to God for help, this is wild, only Christianity teaches this. By turning to God for help, we can be saved from God by God. That's Christianity. But this is what's amazing. God isn't satisfied alone to be satisfied. Instead, he insists on us being satisfied as well. Catch that? God isn't satisfied with just him being satisfied. He wants us to also be what? Satisfied. There's, that's where this mirror is. This is beautiful. This is verse of top is God's getting his satisfaction. Verse 3. Now go to verse 4. We shall be satisfied with what? The goodness of his house. The holiness of your temple. So if the work of God uh, in atoning our sin isn't a big enough miracle. God works another massive miracle by moving to satisfy his people in himself. God begins to change our hearts so that we are satisfied with the goodness of what? His house. What does it mean to be satisfied with somebody's house? It means my kids love to go to Mimi and Poppy's house. I can promise you it's not their house. I mean, it's a nice house, but it's not that cool. They love to go to Mimi and Bobby's house because guess who's there? 
Mimi and Poppy, they love it when Aunt E shows up too, right? They love it. Why? The persons are there. When we are satisfied with the house of God, we are satisfied with God. God himself becomes our satisfaction. What was the very first miracle that Jesus did? It happened in Cana. He goes to a wedding. At the wedding, they run out of wine. So he, his mother says, hey, can't you do something about that? Right? Not, that's not typical. And he says, oh, come on. Okay. Uh, and, he, and he makes the water into wine. Well, just like Jesus took water and made it into wine, he does something much more amazing in the hearts of his children. He turns our tasteless hearts so that we're satisfied in him. Instead of seeing more stuff or better circumstances, Jesus himself begins to satisfy our hearts. Someone once put it into algebraic language by saying Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's not true for the human heart. This becomes true as Jesus begins to satisfy us in himself. So just like God steps in to satisfy himself with us, that's the atonement, so God steps in to satisfy us with himself. In each instance, we're the recipient and God is the benefactor. In each instance, it's grace-fueled and God-led. So we praise God for privileged access. We praise God for privileged satisfaction. And finally, we see at the heart of this, we praise God for privileged proximity. Privileged proximity. So the way the chiastic structure often works and it seems to work here is that the core section is often the chief point. The unmirrored section is often the chief point. You might think of it as the core of the fruit or the nucleus of the atom. So with that in mind, let's look at the core sentence. The first part of verse four, blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. Blessed is the one you choose. So here you go. Surely the question must have come up to you in this passage. Well, there's a big difference between the people who praise God and the people who don't praise God. There's a big difference between the people of God and those who are not the people of God. Well, what makes you one of the people of God? Well, it can't be a certain race because he said here that it is open to all flesh. And it can't be a certain locale because he says it's going to happen across all of the earth. So what does it mean to become a follower of God where you read it yourself? What do you do to become a follower of God? Nothing. You can't do anything. You can't take a lick of credit. God is the one who does all of the lifting. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near. The Apostle Paul, he's writing over 10 centuries later. He says this. Blessed be the God, this is out of Ephesians chapter one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us 
for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glory and grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. So here Paul says that God chose the people of God before the foundation of the world. He goes further to tell us that in his love, he predestined them for adoption. So notice in this passage how followers of God, they do nothing. It's purely passive. They never act. They're always acted upon. God does the choosing, the adopting, the blessing, the making holy and making us blameless. All God acting, all God benefiting us. Paul goes further in chapter two there and he says, Therefore, remember, this is verse 11 and 12, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made uh, in the flesh by hands. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth. You were outside of Israel and strangers to the covenants and the promises, having no hope without God in the world. That's pretty rough. Verse 13. But now. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that's no proximity, have been brought near. That is gained proximity by the blood of Christ. So like in Psalm 65, 4, we see there is a connection between those who were chosen and those who are near. He chooses them and he brings them near in order to satisfy them. He satisfies them with himself by giving them constant access to himself. So now you see how proximity leads to satisfaction, which is all built on access. Another passage out of Ephesians 1, in him, we have obtained an inheritance, having be, been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that, why did you do all this? So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So all of that is done according to the plan in order that we might praise God. Well, friends, that's exactly Psalm 65. God brings us near. He redeems us. He satisfies us. Also, we can do what? So that we can do what the rest of the psalm declares. Give praise to God. That's what we looked at last time. So feel the full logic of this. In God's redemption, in God's creation, in provision, God is at, what to, is at work to do what? In all these things, God is at work to give praise to God. <laughs> Why would you do that, God? Go all the way back to Psalm 65, verse 1. Praise awaits you, O God. Praise is due to you, O God. God does all of this to get the praise he's due. Praise be to God. As we consider perspective, let this be a perspective anchor for us. Let this be a perspective anchor. This isn't chiefly about us. 
not even close. Our lives, our redemption, our salvation is in all intended to give praise to God. As we consider this privileged perspective, that's what we have. Whether you realize it or not, if you're in Christ, you have an incredibly privileged perspective. What will we do with that privileged perspective? What will you do with your privilege? We're going to close with this, one of my favorite missionary stories by a guy by the name of William Borden. Borden was born in 1887 to a really wealthy family. Um, if you say a Borden family, you're thinking maybe they did condensed milk, right? Well, they didn't. Um, they instead were uh, mining silver. Didn't know it, but there you go. Um, very, very wealthy. Borden's mom came to uh, faith when he's around seven years old. And before entering Yale as a freshman, Borden traveled, traveled the world where he made a decision while he was traveling the world to become a missionary. He saw all the hurting. He saw so many people who didn't know Jesus, and he wanted to become a missionary. After that trip of seeing all that, he inscribed in the back of his Bible two words, no reserves, no reserves. While at Yale, he excelled as a leader and as a student, but mostly as a compassionate missionary. He started weekly Bible studies that were so popular that at Yale, three out of four of the students regularly attended every week. Can you imagine? But in the evenings, it was said you would not find Borden enjoying the fraternity experience or hanging out with friends. He was roaming the poorest areas of New Haven and usually treating some homeless man to dinner so he'd have the opportunity while he ate to tell him about Jesus. As he graduated at the top of his class, he was offered a lot of different positions, but he turned all of those down. He was laser-focused on getting to the mission field. By this time, he knew what group of folks he wanted to work with. He wanted to work with a group of Muslims, Muslims in China a group known as the Uyghurs. Around this time, he etched in his Bible two more words as the offers kept coming in for top jobs. No retreat. Right beside no reserves, no retreat. He went on to Princeton to get a theological education. And while he was there, he wasted no time. Not just to get an education, he taught at a, at a local church weekly, served on the board of other Christian. This, this is a kid. And by this time, Borden's father had passed away and left him all the family fortune. But upon graduating, he decided to head to Egypt so he could learn Arabic before heading to serve the Uyghur people in China. While there, his mom was going to come visit. Uh, Borden, uh, while he was still in Egypt, before he left to China, but when she disembarked her ship, she was greeted with the news that Borden had contracted cerebral meningitis, and at the, at the age of 25, he was dead, never made it to the Uyghurs. He was buried there in Cairo, where someone etched on his very humble gravestone the words, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for this life. 
When his mother gathered his belongings, she found the words etched in his Bible. No reserves, no retreat. And he'd added two more words, no regrets. That's how you use a life of privilege. That's how it's spent well. I pray that we will not be those who waste our privilege. No reserves. No retreat. And God willing, no regret. Let's pray. Father, you deserve praise. I find so much comfort in the fact that you will get praise one way or the other. You will bring about the praise that you are due. Father, let that sink into my heart. You will bring about the praise that you are due. Father, I pray that in a room with this many people, there's bound to be somebody who really hasn't embraced the privileged position of being in Christ. They haven't laid it all down. They haven't turned to a Savior. Thank you, God, that William Borden's life wasn't wasted. It was so well spent. Father, I pray that we who are in Christ would spend our lives and our privileged perspective well. Ask all these things to you, Father, through the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our King, the one who has bought all of this for us, and pray that your Spirit would grow your church. Amen.